Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Some of us try to hedge our bet. Some of us go, well, I'm going to follow the Most High God here, and I'll be Robert of the Most High God, but I also want to go for the things of the world here so that I can kind of maybe get satisfaction from both of them. You know, maybe I get fulfillment from both of them. But you really can't do that. You've got to either serve Jesus or you've got to serve the things of this world. Hebrews chapter 7 deals with an interesting and somewhat controversial character, a king by the name of Melchizedek. Who was this king and what does he mean to us as believers and followers of Christ today? Huh, stay with us as we continue our message out of Hebrews chapter 7. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Lot and Abraham had to divide because their herds and flocks could no longer live together. And you may remember that Lot looked towards the city of Sodom and then moved his tent as far as the city of Sodom and then moved into the city of Sodom and then was at the city gate of Sodom. He was actually a ruler in the city of Sodom. And the Bible tells us that Lot's righteous heart was vexed day and night as he saw the wickedness in the city. Hey, we live in the world. The, the city of Sodom is a type of the world, by the way. And we live in the world. And sometimes we hear about things that happen or see things that happen. And our hearts are vexed as well. A few months ago, I was listening to the radio and they had some news story that was on there. And they gave TMI, too much information in the story. And all of a sudden, I heard what I didn't want to hear. It was the last thing I wanted to hear. Have you ever had that happen to you? And you go, oh, I wish I would have never have heard that. It's just a, the awful things that happen here in this world. I think my heart was vexed then, and I think that's what Lot was putting up with. His righteous heart was vexed day and night as he lived there in that city. But what happens when you get too close to the world, when you're a righteous man that lives too close to the world, when the disaster takes place in the world, the disaster envelops you. And so there was a group of five kings that were led by a guy by the name of Chateau Lede Lomar. Now, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's dead and doesn't care, okay? <laughs> Shadow de Lomar led five kings and attacked the city of Sodom. And he took all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the, the, the grain, whatever else they had for money, and he raided it. And he took the people as slaves and he led them away. I don't know that Abraham would have even have cared about it had Lot not been involved in it. Abraham might have looked at these are five kings from the world. They're attacking the city of Sodom, which is one of the things of this world. And, and I'm just going to leave it alone. But when he learned that his nephew Lot, Lot's wife and Lot's daughters had been taken captive, Abraham got 300 men, servants that were born in his home, and he took out after these five kings. Now, there is no doubt that the 300 and something men that Abraham had with him were smaller forces than the five kings had. And there is no doubt that the five kings had an army that was trained. And had they lined up in battle array against Abraham and his 300 servants, they would have lost. But it is not uncommon that a smaller force using a good strategy overcomes a larger force. There have been many battles throughout history where this has happened. Many of them in the Civil War. Did you know in the Civil War, in the beginning of it, the North had a vast, large, much larger army? than what the South did. And in the battles, they outnumbered them sometimes two to three to one, sometimes even greater. But in the beginning of the war, the South won almost every battle that they fought because of strategy. 
where the North just kind of threw numbers at it. We got all these men. Let's just go at it. Let's just throw the numbers into that battle where the South, because they had less numbers, had to pick and choose and use the typography and the terrain to their advantage. And they did so. And the smaller forces defeated the larger forces for a while. And they kind of had to turn and run and they ended up being overwhelmed by the, by the sheer numbers eventually. Plus Grant got involved and Grant was a little bit general for the North. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so Abraham divides his army into two and goes to their camp at night. The kings don't know that he's anywhere around and he attacks them in the middle of the night. That's where we pick it up. This is the slaughter of the kings. That's where we pick it up in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 14. It says, he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Once Abraham's 300 something men attacked from these two directions and got them back on their heels, they just kept pursuing them. Damascus is hundreds of miles away from where the battle took place. When he got them back on his heels, they just took off and kept going. I think Abraham was a little concerned that they might regroup and come back after him again. And so they just continued to pursue him and they scattered them utterly. And so now they're coming back. They have lot with them. There was this great reunion. They have all the gold, the silver, the money, the riches, the wealth of the city of Sodom. And as they're making it back, verse 16 says, so he brought back all of the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after he returned from the defeating Sheder Lomar and the kings who were with him. Now, as he's making his way back in, he comes into this place called the King's Valley. We really don't even know where that valley is. Why is it called the King's Valley? Number one, the king of Sodom meets him there. Number two, as soon as he starts moving towards Sodom, all of a sudden coming on the scene is Melchizedek. And remember, you have the king of Sodom and you have the king of righteousness. The king of Sodom will represent the world. The king of righteousness will represent the most high God. And they are in the valley of the kings. And Melchizedek comes mysteriously on the scene. After it talks about the king of Sodom in verse 17, in verse 18, it says, then Melchizedek. And remember, if you're reading this in Hebrew, it says, then the king of righteousness, the king of Salaam, the king of peace, met him and brought out bread and wine. If you have a pencil with you or a, or a pen or a highlighter, then highlight or underline the bread and the wine in chapter 18. If you don't have a pencil or, or a pen and you're just staring at me right now, point at bread and wine. Because I think that's important. It says that he brings bread and wine, this king of righteousness, this king of peace. And some people just quickly shrug off. You like my shrug? Quickly shrug off. The fact that these are communion elements, but I have a hard time shrugging them off. I'll tell you why. Because of the context. The context is a priest who is a priest forever. And Jesus is a king of righteousness and prince of peace who gives his sacrifice, which is represented to us as bread and wine. In the context of a priest, you find the elements that represent the body of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, who would be given so our sins would be forgiven. I, I think it's a clue as to who he is. I think he brings bread and wine to Abraham 
And it is a statement of salvation that comes through the sacrifice. It goes on to say here, he was a priest of God most high. Now, what does it mean? He's a priest of God's most high. That means that he represented people between before God for people. My question is what people? If he's the king of Jerusalem, as some suggest, Jerusalem is inhabited at this point by Gentiles. Later on, David will take the city. You remember, Jerusalem doesn't come under Israeli control until David. David is approximately a thousand years after the time of Abraham. That's a long time. So who does he represent? Well, we don't know. If he is a type of Jesus, we have no idea who the people are that Melchizedek represented. If he is Jesus, then the people he represents is you. He is a priest of the Most High, and Jesus, Melchizedek, the King of Righteousness, becomes your champion, your Redeemer, your priest. He is the one that has gone behind the veil for you. Otherwise, you would be lost. You would be lost in your own sin. Now, this Melchizedek is a king and a priest. In the law, you can't be a king and a priest. You can be a king and a prophet. You can be a priest and a prophet, but you can't be a king and a priest. But this is prior to the law, and he is a king and a priest. And then Abraham does something surprising. It says at the end of verse 20, and he gave him a tithe of all. Now, a tithe is 10%. He gave him 10% of everything he had. That's a tithe. And so when sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, how much should I give? And by the way, it's always a bad idea to ask a pastor how much you should give. All right. <laughs> how much should you give? And I say, well, how much you got? I'm just wondering. <laughs> or I'm asked the question, can I give less than a tithe? Can I tithe less than 10%? Someone asked me. And the answer to that is no, because if you're going to tithe, you give 10%. But if you choose to give less than 10%, that's your business. The Bible says we are not to give out of constraint. In other words, we aren't to give to God because we have to. We're to give to God because we want to. However, having said that, I think we should give. I think every believer should give to two things. I think, number one, they ought to give to the work of the gospel. We ought to be a part of what God's doing in the gospel reaching a lost and perishing world. And number two, we ought to give to the poor. Now, you might say, I am the poor. People ought to give to me. Well, okay, but you ought to give to the poor because Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so we want to be those who give. And so when Abraham meets Melchizedek, he takes everything he has, which I take it is all the stuff from Sodom. And he takes all the stuff that he has and he gives 10% of it to Melchizedek. And now when he leaves, he's 10% lighter than he was before. Okay. And so then, well, let's go back up to verse 19. And it says, and he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high. I am persuaded, first of all, that God wanted to bless Abraham. God had called Abraham out of his home in Ur in the area of Mesopotamia because he wanted to bring him into the land of Canaan and he wanted to bless him. And I am persuaded that God has called you out of the world, out of Mesopotamia, as it were, so that you could be blessed. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. And I am persuaded that there is a richness in the life lived for Jesus wholeheartedly that you can never find in the world. The world has promises. Follow me, take from me. I'll give you what you want. I'll fulfill your lusts. I'll fulfill your passions. I'll fulfill your desires. I can make you wealthy. I can give you security. I can give you all the fame, the power that you want. 
But here's the thing that you learn about the world. It's all vanity. It presents one thing and gives you another. It is the good old bait and switch. Here's what it offers you. And this is what you get in the end. And there's an emptiness. I call it a dullness when you live for the things of the world. That's why King Solomon eventually would write, everything in this world is vanity. Every achievement is vanity. Have you ever achieved what you've been pursuing? And when you finally achieve it, there's a sense of emptiness that's there. That's because there's, there's nothing really of this world that is of value. And you are blessed when you are of the most high God. Melchizedek said to Abraham, blessed is Abraham of the most high God. And God would say to you, blessed are you, whatever your name is, of the most high God. I am blessed. I am Robert, blessed of the most high God. Abraham was Abraham, blessed of the most high God because we belong to him. And that's what real life and real fulfillment, real satisfaction is about. Now, some of us try to hedge our bet. Some of us go, well, I'm going to follow the most high God here and I'll be Robert of the most high God, but I also want to go for the things of the world here so that I can kind of maybe get satisfaction from both of them. You know, maybe I get fulfillment from both of them, but you really can't do that. You've got to either serve Jesus or you've got to serve the things of this world. You might try to hedge your bets, but you'll end up following one and hating the other. That's what Jesus said, right? You can't live for God and mammon, God and stuff. You got to choose one and you're going to have to live for one. Now he goes on to say to him here, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's God who possesses all those things. And blessed be God most high who has delivered you from your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek said to Abraham, it wasn't you that really won this battle, Abraham. It was God that delivered the enemies into your hand. Abraham might have left going, wow, that was quite a military victory. Maybe I ought to become a general. Maybe I should put an army together. I'll go out and become the protector and deliverer of all peoples. And Melchizedek says, eh, God's the one who fought for you. And God's the one who delivered them into your hands. And then after he gives a tithe to him, it says, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, where'd Melchizedek go? He's in the middle of a conversation with Melchizedek. When he sees the king of Sodom, all of a sudden Melchizedek is there. He finishes the conversation with Melchizedek and now the king of Sodom is there. God's making a connection in the king's valley between the king of righteousness and the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is a representation of the world. The king of Sodom lived in a city where there was great wickedness, but I don't think that the people of Sodom would have said that they were wicked. Just like today, people who are living in the world who are wicked deny their wickedness. The Bible says the day is coming when people will call evil good and good evil. And folks, we're living in that day. We're living in the day when those who are wicked say that they are good and they call those that are good, well, evil and wicked. And, and the world, it has such a facade. The world gives you this, this glitter. It offers you, take from me, have all of your lusts fulfilled, have all of your pleasures fulfilled, have all of your power and your fame, but it's just a facade. It's like the, the city of Las Vegas. A friend of mine that grew up there and he was telling me that, that the city itself is so radically different than the Strip. When you go down the Strip and you're looking at all the glitter, it's like, ooh, wow, this is incredible. But you get 100 yards past it and it is a mess. It is absolutely the opposite of what is presented to you. And that is the world. It's like all this glitter and ooh, look at me, come to the world. Yeah, the world. And you look at God most high and you look at the world, all it has to offer. And you think, I'm gonna go for the world but you're choosing emptiness and loneliness and vanity. And in the end, it's all vanity. But now the king of Sodom shows up. And when the king of Sodom comes to, to Abraham in verse 21, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. In other words, just give me the people and you can have all of the treasures for yourself. Now, Abraham already should have them as a reward for his deliverance of the people. But now the king of Sodom says, go ahead and take it. Now, here's the, here's the comparison. Melchizedek shows up representing the God most high and Abraham gives to him. The king of Sodom shows up and says, you take this and Abraham's going to refuse it. And I love the example. The world says to us, take of me, take of me, take of me, be part of the world, take of me. And God says, you come to me, you give to me. And we find richness in this dichotomy. When we give, we find real life. When we take of the world, we find emptiness and loneliness. And this is the same thing Jesus said when he said, if you seek to save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you save it. That's the dichotomy of the world. What God wants for you is to give to him. Stop taking from the world and give to him. And I love Abraham's response. Abraham says in verse 23, I will take nothing. Now, excuse me, let's go back to verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's God that owns everything. He possesses it all. And I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. The reality is the world can't make Abram rich. Sodom can't make Abram rich because he raised his hand to the God most high, the possessor of everything, the possessor of heaven and earth. And once you give to God, and once you give to the one to be used by him who has made everything, then there's nothing that the world has to offer you. Everything that the world has is empty. They're offering you emptiness. They're offering you vanity. And I think we as Christians should say to the world, I won't take a thread and I won't take a sandal strap from you. I have raised my hands to the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will take nothing from you. We should find ourselves not trying to hedge our bets, but living wholeheartedly and completely for God, even as Abraham did. And so now, now he refuses it and he doesn't take it. But Abraham is just a man. Sometimes when we read about these people so long ago, it's like Abraham, Moses. These guys were incredible. They were great godly men, but they were just men. They're like us. And don't you think that Abraham, when the dust settled and, and, and there goes the king of Sodom, all of the people and all of the riches. And there Abraham is thinking, I just, I just did all of that for nothing. In fact, I'm 10% lighter than I was before because he runs into Melchizedek. And I think that like we might think, as he looked at all of those riches from Sodom, don't you think that they represented security to him? If I keep this money, it's security. See, they didn't have social security in their day. <laughs> and we might not have social security in our day. Sorry to bring that up, by the way. Some of you guys are like, I didn't go to church to hear about that. All right, all right, but I'm just saying. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, okay? All of that represented security to him. It was his future. Boy, I could use all this money. You say, well, Abraham was already rich. Well, he was already rich, but, but how much money is enough? How much money is enough for you? You know what the answer to that is? More than what I got. Doesn't matter. If you're rich here, if you have a couple million dollars and we ask you how much money is enough, you go, more than I got. If you're poor, you say, more than I got. It's always more. 
And it always provides a security to get more, right? So he gave up security. He gave up comfort. He gave up provisions for those that he cares for. There are a lot of things that he gave up. And I think two things. I think Abraham was a little bit unsure about the five kings returning. He thought they might regather and come after me and take revenge for what I've done. And number two, boy, I missed out on my great reward. This could have set me for life. Now here I am again. I even have less than what I had when I started off. So God meets him in chapter 15 and look at the first thing God says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. Now, someone doesn't say don't be afraid unless you're afraid. And if they do, if you went and met somebody, they go, I want to introduce you to so-and-so. And they said, hi, my name is so-and-so. Don't be afraid. You go, I wasn't afraid, all right? I don't know why you said that, but I wasn't afraid. So when God says to Abraham, do not be afraid, it tells us what about Abraham? That he was fearful. And so God says, don't be afraid. Verse one, Abraham, I am your shield. Those five kings are not going to be able to come back and get you because I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I'll take care of you. And your exceedingly great reward. Wow. The exceedingly great reward was that gold and silver and jewels. But God says, don't worry, Abraham, you gave that back, but I am your exceedingly great reward. And tell me what's worth more. What if you had everything in this world? Jesus said, if a man has everything in this world, he would give it all up to save his soul. What is the most valuable thing that you have? You might go down the thought of possessions, my home. Well, you really don't have it. The bank has it. Most of us are upside down in the houses, right? But even if you did have it, even if it was yours, that's not the most valuable thing you have because you would give it up for your soul. The most valuable thing that you have is your soul and the most valuable possession, the exceedingly great reward is him that we would say, Lord, I want to live for you. Now you have a choice today. And I love this choice from this text. As we consider Melchizedek, you can lift your hand to the God most high. He is the possessor of the heaven and earth, and he can be your exceedingly great reward, or you can take from the world. And if you take from the world, there's a, it looks like you're gaining. It looks like you're getting stuff, but you're not. Or you could say, I'm going to give to him. And in giving to him, you gain everything. You gain the possessor of it all. You gain the person, you gain God, you gain Jesus, you gain it all. May we give up our lives, stop taking from the world and say, I won't take a thread or a sandal strap from you because I've lifted my hand to the God most high. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we've taken time to take a look here at Melchizedek. We thank you for your continued work. We thank you for the work of your spirit within us. And Lord, we want to say we're sorry when we have turned to the world and tried to fulfill our lusts or our passions or, or our comfort or gain security through the things of this world. We know that nothing here is for sure, but that you never change. And Lord, we want to raise our hands today to the God most high. We want to do what Jesus said when he said that if we want to save our lives, we've got to give them up. So we come to you and we give to you today. We ask to be used by you. Lord, we get upset when people in the world use us, but we want to be used by you. We want you to use our lives to touch hearts and draw people to you. 
We thank you for this. We pray that we would continue to find richness as we continue our study here in the future in the uh, appearance of Melchizedek. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.